And we are back on the Boots on the Ground pod alongside Ben Conroy, IM Essex Thayer. Ben, we've had a few days to decompress from a Monday night first half thriller across I-40 in Chapel Hill. And uh, what I what I have to say about that game is on the Boots on the Ground pod, uh, looking ahead to that that particular game, I originally said that I thought it was going to be a, a hard-fought Wake Forest loss. And then a day or two later, I wrote my preview on BSD, and my mind was changed after the win against Louisville. And I said that I thought Wake Forest was going to potentially find a way to win. Uh, I was wrong. I think in the first half, Wake Forest played like the team I thought it could against UNC, kind of just holding it all together. The three-point shots, keeping things close. Essentially, I I said with Damari Monsanto, I thought that Wake Forest had an opportunity to compete. And Damari did contribute in making that first half really competitive for Wake Forest. But that second half, the wheels started to come off the wagon a little bit. and, And at the end of the day, the beast was awoken for, for North Carolina. And at the, you know, that's a national title contending team. And, and we saw that in the second half. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about thrilling Essex. What was really thrilling was our trip to the arena more so than anything. Oh, God, <laughs> Essex had to you swing should... by Raleigh to pick me up and we ran into some traffic and got there. What, what would you say? Like seven minutes before tip off, which, you know, you know, Essex and I would like to get set up early at the game. So had a little high stress uh, getting to the arena. We did get there on time. But yeah, I mean, I I, th- I believe my prediction was wake to lose by nine. So I had, you know, a pretty competitive game all the way through. And for the first, yeah, like you said, in the first half, I felt really good about it. Wake was excelling on defense. It was sort of a it was a really weird first half of basketball. But at the same time, I thought Wake responded really well to one of Carolina's early runs. They came back out of a timeout and went on a run of their own, ended the half very, very strong. And then in the second half, I think you saw sort of a combination of R.J. Davis making his case for ACC Player of the Year, potentially National Player of the Year with that kind of performance. You know, the, the shots starting to go down for Carolina a little bit more. And Wake, first of all, Wake giving up a lot of quality looks on the interior. And also, Wake just remaining ice cold on the road from three in a game where you really needed your shooters to sort of be at their best. Wake finished three of 20 from three-point land. Two of those were from Damari Monsanto in the first half. So that's just, you know, it's just really hard. I think I said before the game that Wake was going to have to have sort of an outstanding performance in at least one aspect of the game. And in the first half, they defended, I thought, really, really well. They answered the call. They looked good. And then, like you said, this is a national championship caliber team in Carolina. I mean, I knew that going in and then seeing them, you know, perform in person. They have so many weapons and they play so well together. And, man, they defend at such a high level. Their guards are big and physical and fast. And Wake just looked out of sorts on the offensive end all night long. And that's what Carolina does to everybody. So. You know, Wake is not going to fault Wake for losing that game. I certainly would have liked to see it be a little bit more competitive down the stretch. But, you know, it's just a learning experience for Wake. I think that was a game that exposes some of the areas they still have to grow in as a team. Haven't been the strongest, you know, performing team on the road so far this year. 
That continued against Carolina. You got another big road game coming up at Pitt. I didn't really think that many players on Wake played like a particularly outstanding game. Hunter Salas was effective in the first half. Cam Hildreth got some shots to fall, but, you know, Boopy Miller, 2 of 12 from the field. You know, you, some of their guys just didn't have the juice that they needed to go out and win that game was was the long and the short of it, I thought. I agree. Um, you you, you kind of said it yourself that Wake was going to need a near-perfect game to defeat North Carolina, and I think a lot of that Wake Forest offense is predicated on the guard play and to combat a, a North Carolina guard in R.J. Davis that scored a career-high 36 points on 14-23 shooting. Wake Forest trio of starting guards, Hunter Salas, Cam Hildreth, and Boopy Miller, finished the game 13-37 from the field, and it worked fine in the first half, but in the second half, the, those three, just 22% of their shots, which is just never going to get it done. And some of the offensive woes for Wake Forest translated over to the defensive end as well, which is something that Steve Forbes talked about after the game, is just when you have a, a hard time scoring on the offensive end, it was allowing North Carolina to get up and out in transition and Wake Forest defensive transition wasn't matching, which was creating a lot of those high percentage uh, good shot opportunities for UNC, which just allowed them to score a, a ton of points in the second half. So Wake was able to hang around and they were competing with, as we said, a national title caliber team, but you can't have a player score 36 points against you. And, and, and one of the things I want to talk about, Ben, actually, before I get into that, I just do the one thing I do want to note is one thing that was really interesting to me is that it wasn't the turnovers that, that beat Wake Forest. It was six turnovers and it wasn't the fouls either. The only guy that there were no players with four fouls. The, the foul trouble was maxed out at three and it was Cam Efton and Andrew Carr. So it wasn't the, you know, some of the normal Wake Forest struggles, the fouls and the turnovers. It was some some lackluster offense and then not getting back on defense and allowing North Carolina to kind of have its way on its own offensive side in the second half. And speaking of that North Carolina offense and of R.J. Davis, there was something that I asked Steve Forbes about after the game that interested me when it comes to, to how Wake lined up against the Tar Heels. So all season long, Wake Forest has played in something on defense called a drop coverage, which is when there's a high pick, usually when a guard is is handling the ball and a big is setting the pick up top, and the guard takes the pick and goes kind of down the lane. And instead, when the defensive guard takes that pick, instead of the, the center or the big or, or the five or the four, whatever you want to say, coming up and trying to cut off that guard that's powering down the lane, they give them a mid-range shot and they're defending more of the paint and so North Carolina played that to a T and it usually works in college basketball to a certain extent Wake has certainly seen benefits off of the drop coverage but RJ Davis and also Elliot Cadeau used it a lot as well just went to town and once he started getting those mid-range shots going essentially it felt like it was game over 14 field goals 36 points and some of that is some of the reason you run the drop coverage is to avoid the ball movement and getting the opponent 
a lot of open three-point looks. And to an extent that worked, UNC shot 33% from three, but Wake Forest, as you said, Ben, shot 15% from three. So North Carolina was winning that battle. And R.J. Davis went 50% from three. He was four of eight. So at the end of the day, it was the R.J. Davis show. Once he started getting those mid-range looks, he was floating the ball a lot, and he just over and over got it to go. And once that started happening and the drop coverage stopped working for Wake Forest and certainly stopped working on R.J. Davis, that second half, it 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 was getting late early and very early in the second half. And, you know, Steve Forbes said this after the game, and I think there's some truth to it. He said, you know, we're one of the better def- defensive teams from the three-point line in the country. And he's like, we, you know, we made 18 threes against Louisville. He's like, our team is not going to get beat that way by getting just barraged from the three-point line. He's like, that's, you know, a choice we've made defensively. Our team's not going to get beat that way. And there is some truth to that. Over the past three games, I think Wake Forest opponents have made a combined seven three-pointers in their last two losses, you know, the against Carolina and State. You know, those teams want to combine five of 23 from three-point land. Uh, NC State didn't make a single three against Wake Forest. But, you know, the I, I think where, like you said, that defensive transition really let Wake Forest down in the second half. You know, the team was just struggling to get back on defense. And Carolina's guards, Elliot Cadeau, and obviously R.J. Davis are so good in transition and play with their heads up and are so good at getting to the rack and, you know, feeding their big men that Wake just wasn't able to keep up. And it was they were not shooting well enough to make up any ground when that was going on. So I think that's what you saw happening. And that, you know, that 98 points in the paint over the last two losses is kind of a, a tough stat to stomach because, you know, it's it's not always just the, you know, the somebody said this, you know, in a reply to my Twitter. It's not always just the big men that are gashing Wake Forest. Sometimes it is those guards getting that mid range. Hunter Salas said after the game is like R.J. Davis got to his floater in the second half. That's what happened. And, you know, R.J. Davis is a very gifted player and there are a lot of very gifted guards in the ACC. And I think, you know, that's that's sort of just what where Wake struggled in that second half. And. It, it, it had to be a very frustrating game for both the team and for the coaching staff to just, you know, in the second half to see things get away like that. Cause it was what 34, 33 wake forest at half. I think Carolina scored. How many points was it? 52 in the second half. It was 85, 63 was the final. So yeah, that's, I mean, giving up 52 points and a half of a college basketball game, you're going to struggle to win against anybody, much less when you're on the road against a top three team in the country, you know, final four contender. So a learning experience for Wake Forest. It's a team that I think is still learning how to play on the road. I don't think they've seen their best stuff on the road yet. And we'll get into this later too, but I think, you know, the time is approaching for them to get things figured out. And, you know, so far this year, this has been a Wake Forest team that has not had their best stuff on the road. And, you know, you saw that against Florida State, struggled to, you know, with ball security on the road there, took a loss, was able to get a win against Boston College on the road, but against NC State, you know, there's a, a number of factors that played into the NC State loss, but even so, in that second half was not, I think Steve Forbes said, he said, I don't know what team that was. And, you know, this is a Wake Forest team that I think right now is struggling to put together consistent performances and complete games on the road. I think, you know, you saw it against Florida State, obviously had a a monster night of turnovers there. 
that haunted the team and eventually resulted in a loss. Second half against NC State, really struggled to put it together, squandered a lead, very painful loss there as well. And against Carolina, you know, really competitive, promising first half. And then just sort of the wheels fell off in the second half. So right now, you know, this is a team that is just very much in the fundamental stages of learning how to play on the road. They've been wonderful at home. Fantastic. You know, really defended home court well. And, so, you know, so their marquee wins, some of them have come at home. That win against Miami comes to mind. But, in, and, you know, Steve Forbes, at this point, the team has yet to play even half of the conference schedule. But I think the time is, you know, fast approaching for this Wake Forest team to put together some complete performances on the road, play on the road at Pitt coming up. That's a good opportunity to get a road win. But just to sort of build your confidence away from home. Because I think this team is still learning how to win on the road. I think the win against Boston College was great, but they have struggled to repeat those kinds of performances. So I think, you know, this this opportunity against Pitt is a really important game. The team kind of has a random, really long break leading up to it. They'll be rested. I know some of the guys are banged up. Hopefully you get a chance to get your head right, you know, wash the bad taste from Carolina out of your mouth, go on the road and get, you know, any road win in this conference is important. So get an important road win to sort of get your head on straight for, for a big stretch of games coming up. Kind of leads us into what we're going to talk about next, Ben. And we, we had said on social media that this was going to be a UNC recap and also a mailbag episode. And so we were lucky to have some, some listeners to the podcast and then some questions that we'll discuss now. Certainly hope to do this in the future, so make sure to get your questions in. But the first is about the rest of this Wake Forest men's basketball season and what is the ceiling for this team? What are our, quote-unquote, honest odds of an NCAA tournament berth for the Wake Forest Demon Deacons? And, and something that we discussed about before we recorded, Ben, is that this basketball team right now is, true to the word, a bubble team. They are squarely on the bubble in a lot of the bracketology uh, posts, predictions, what have you right now from a whole litany of bracketologists. Uh, and and there's a lot of ACC basketball left to be played. Wake Forest is eight games into the conference season. There's 12 left. So there's a lot of work left to be done. And certainly, you know, that UNC loss is not a huge hit to Wake Forest hopes this season. They're still ranked very nicely in, in Ken Palm 41 and in net at 46. Wake Forest is right around where they'd probably want to be. You, you certainly would want probably want those Florida State and NC State games back, but a whole lot ahead for Wake Forest. And so just looking at what the, the ceiling is for the rest of the team this season and kind of looking at what's to come in the ACC schedule, I, I looked at every single game and wrote down what I think about pretty much each one. And I kept coming back to the same conclusion which is that these next four games for Wake Forest are pretty darn critical, about as critical as it can get. You mentioned the game at Pitt, Ben, and there's a home matchup with Syracuse, travel to Georgia Tech, and then a, a chance to get revenge against NC State at home. Those are your next four before you go to Duke in February. And to me, 
I think Wake probably needs to beat all of them. Maybe win three. Maybe you can afford to lose at Pitt or lose at home to NC State, though you you probably don't want to. I don't know how that's going to affect the metrics. But I think to feel good, and I think all these games are are quite winnable, I think you got to go 4-0 in the next four. Then you go to Duke and UVA. I have those as losses. And the stretch can get really interesting. You have the home game at Pitt, home Duke. You go to Virginia Tech, and then you finish with back-to-back home games, Georgia Tech and Clemson. I see three, the most likely results I see at the end of the conference season. I think the ceiling for Wake Forest is probably around 15 and 5. I could see the middle being 14 and 6, and I see the lower end being 13 and 7. And I think Wake needs to at least get to 13 and 7 in regular season conference play to make it to the NCAA tournament. They went 13 and 7 in the ACC in 21 22 and were left out. But I have an interesting stat on that, Ben. And when I went back and looked, and it's kind of how you play the beginning of the season, then how many quad three and quad four games do you think Wake Forest played in that entire season back in 21, 22? 11, I don't know. 20. Wake Forest played 20 quad three, quad four games <laughs> in 21, 22. That is a lot. This season, that number is currently eight. And they have won every single one of them. Wake Forest is undefeated in quad three and quad four. They have played more, far more games in the quad one, quad two regions than in the, the latter two. And so Wake Forest strength, a schedule has got to be a whole lot better. So I think 13 and seven could get you there. But I think Wake Forest would probably to feel safe want to be at 14 and six. And I think also part of this is you can't go to the ACC tournament and lay an egg like what happened two seasons ago against Boston College in Brooklyn. So I, again, just to quickly recap, I really do think these next four games are really important. And I think that includes getting back on the right foot, getting back on track, winning a game away from the Joel against a pit team that is solid. And they did just beat Duke and Cameron, but that was because Blake Henson hit seven to seven from three point range. I don't think Pitt is super good. I really don't. And I think you have to go up there to the Steel City and win. And I think that you on the right foot for those three afterwards. Stealing one either at Cameron Indoor or at the JPJ against UVA would be a really big win. Again, those away wins are going to be huge. And I, I think it'd be great if Wake could beat Duke at home, if they could beat Duke in the Joel. I think Duke is beatable. I don't think Duke is really, really good. I don't think they're North Carolina good by any stretch of the imagination. And so I think splitting that series against Duke, either getting one at Cameron or one at the Joel would be great. And at the end of the day, my last point on this, Ben, is that it's absolutely paramount to protect home court. Wake Forest has done it all season long, protecting the Joel. They are going to have to do that for the rest of the season if they want to make the NCAA tournament but they've also got to prove they can win on the road. You have the Boston college game, but you got to go win some of these. You got to maybe go beat Virginia tech in Blacksburg, maybe go beat Virginia in Charlottesville. See if you can, you absolutely have to go beat Notre Dame in South bend. 
Like some of these games have to go beat Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Some of these games are non-negotiables if Wake Forest wants to make the NCAA tournament. And so that means they're not only going to have to protect home court, but they're going to need to go win on the road. Yeah, you know, I first of all, looking at the rest of Wake's schedule here, I want to make a prediction. I can see that that I can see that last home game against Clemson being a very important potential win for Wake Forest resume. A home game against Clemson to end the year. I could see, you know, depending on where Wake stands at that point, heading into the ACC tournament, I could see that potentially getting you that 13th or 14th win, depending on how things play out. I could see that being a very critical game. That that doesn't isn't really relating to the rest of my, you know, the rest of my point here, but I just think that based on how the seasons for both teams are going, I think that could end up being a very important game. And another thing, you and I made the trip up to Pitt um, last year for, for Wake Forest at Pitt. Heartbreaking loss. But you bring up Blake Henson's great performance against Duke hitting seven threes. He hit eight against Wake in Pitt in Pittsburgh last year. And that was a big part of the reason that Wake lost that game is just Pitt went nuclear from three. Um, so all that to say, it's not going to be an easy task to beat this Pitt team. Pitt is a very tough out at home. They're just kind of a, you know, one of those ACC teams. It's just, it's, it's always hard to go in there and, and eke out a win. I think Wake Forest, I agree with you. I think bare minimum three out of the next four you have to have. I don't know necessarily which three you would prefer to have. If you could, you know, prefer to have any, I think you have to beat Syracuse at home. I think that's non-negotiable. And I think you have to beat Georgia tech on the road. I think those two, those are going to kill you in the metrics. I think if you lose those games, um, if you if you had to pick one out of the two versus NC State or at Pitt, I guess you probably take NC State at home. Probably is my I instinct. Agree. But you know, I just think the metrics tend to punish you a little bit less for road losses, especially if they're competitive. But you know, that's all conjecture, of course. But I do think that the next four games, if we can find a way to go four zero, I think it'll accomplish a number of things. I think it'll build up hype again in the program after the little dip that it took, you know, after North Carolina, I don't think, you know, morale's in the toilet or anything, but it'll build up that morale before a huge Duke game in Cameron, sort of get the the program on the right track. I think this team, if they can win the next two road games, will play with a lot more confidence on the road in Cameron indoor. If they can establish that pattern of being able to win and compete on the road. That being said, I would probably pick wake to lose in Cameron as well, but I think, going in there and competing then sets you up to go win at Virginia, which is another really, really tough environment to win. Tony Bennett teams play better at home, especially this year's team. They defend better at home. They shoot better at home. They're going to be much tougher out at home in Virginia than they were in Winston-Salem. So I think to get, I, I think, you know, to get to the tournament, I think if Wake splits against Duke, they'll be in great shape. I think you have to win in South Bend. Like you said, I think you got to beat Georgia Tech at home. I think you got to beat Virginia Tech on the road too. You know, it's just like you said, I think I think 13 and seven and a solid, you know, one or two wins in the ACC tournament gets you to the tournament is my instinct. And I think 14 gives you even a little bit more leeway if you can get to that 14 win mark in the ACC. And then if you really turn some heads and win 15 games, then I think, you know, I think Wake will go dancing again and there will be, you know, celebration in Winston-Salem about that. But right now, like you said, we've talked about this. Wake is 
the you know definition. Look up bubble team in the dictionary. Wake Forest picture would be right next to that definition. You know, it's a team that has every everybody that talks about this Wake Forest team says they have the ability to beat anyone on every, any given night. They have enough talent on offense. They have enough shooting, enough scoring. Afton Reed is playing good enough defense. <clears throat> There's enough talent in that starting five and shooting coming off the bench now with Demario Monsanto and Parker Fredrickson to beat any team on any night. They have the, you know, they have played like an NCAA tournament team in many of their games this season. They have looked to be that caliber of team. But can you lift, can you, you know, raise the standard to be doing that night in, night out more consistently throughout the back half of that stretch to be, you know, to not leave any doubt in the minds of the selection committee come selection Sunday that Wake Forest belongs in the NCAA tournament? It remains to be seen. There's a lot of basketball left to be played. I'm, I'm very, very intrigued to see how these next four games, especially like we've been talking about, play out. Yeah, I mean, we're eight games into the ACC schedule, 12 left. There's been a lot of talk about Wake Forest, especially starting now to become some national conversation about Wake Forest. We're obviously talking a lot about the Deeks here. So a whole lot of talk, and there's been the talking of the talk. In the next 12 games, it's going to be about Wake Forest walking the walk, too. You know, it could go one of two ways. Or, it could I mean, everything could stay the same, and Wake Forest could continue to coast alongside that bubble line for the rest of the year, which would be stressful, to say the least. Wake Forest could play like the team that it looks like it can play like sometimes and make the tournament comfortably. Or it could really take a nosedive and in a few weeks, we're not discussing the NCAA tournament on this podcast. Um, la- last point, I, you know, for me to feel comfortable going up to Washington, D.C. for the ACC tournament, I think it's got to be 14. Just to leave you some wiggle room, 13, I think you got to do something in D.C., not something big, but I, you can't you can't have the B.C. game in D.C. if you're at 13, in my opinion. But I think Wake Forest is a tournament team. I think Wake Forest is a tournament-quality team. They just have to play like it night in and night out. You got to go win basketball games at the end of the day. You can be as good of a team as you you want on paper. Just look at Arkansas and not make the tournament. You got to go win the games. And moving on in our, our mailbag, there was a question about the, the injuries that have kind of been running through the Wake team right now. Hunter Salas has had, you know, a, a little bit of, injury issues, Cam Hildreth especially. And then you have two guys coming back off of injuries and Damari Monsanto and Jawatuka. And just quickly then looking at where everything's at. I mean, I know we, this break I think is really, really big for, for Wake Forest because you can get guys a little bit healthy. I mean, starting off for me, it, Cam Hildreth I think is the biggest injury thing you have to look at right now. Cam's got what, what Steve Forbes kind of described as a long-term injury that he's going to more likely than not just play through the entire season. It sounds like it's something that's going to have to be dealt with after the conclusion of this year, Uh, but it's clearly affecting him. He's got a a guard of some sort on his hand. It's impacting his shots. I think it's impacting his ability to do what he wants with the ball off the dribble. And I think we saw it a little bit uh, against North Carolina on Monday night. So just, what what does Cam do here, Ben? I mean, I've got some opinions on it, but I, I'd love to hear what, what you think about what 
maybe needs to some adjustments that might need to be made in, in Cam Hildreth's game this season. Yeah, honestly, the, the the biggest like the biggest way in which I've seen Cam Hildreth be affected by this sort of lingering injury, as it's been described, is the way he shoots the ball from long range. So you know, we've talked at length this year about you know what a boon. Cam Hildreth's sort of improved long, long range shooting, shooting from the three point line has been for this team. I, you know, I've seen just a couple more, you know, errant misses from him. It seems like there's definitely some discomfort in his shooting motion. Now I think, you know, it's a lot less fluid than it was when he's dealing with his injury. So, and I think you saw it on display a little bit against UNC. I think Cam Hildreth is sort of going to have to be a little bit more creative in the ways that he can score the ball. Now, you know, he, is still found a way to be effective against Carolina, sort of getting to his spots in the mid range and the post around the hoop. I think that is going to have to become the prominent way in which he scores the basketball. Now, you know, unless there's some improvement in the way that his wrist is feeling, because it just doesn't look like he's shooting the three ball with a whole lot of comfort right now. And he was shooting it, you know, incredibly well earlier in the season against Miami sort of before this injury started hindering him, he was on fire and just shooting it with so much confidence. I think you can tell he's just a little bit hindered. It is a shame because, you know, he's shooting the ball so well. And to see, you know, to see that sort of take a hit a little bit is definitely a bummer. You know, Cam is one of the toughest guys you'll see in the ACC in college basketball. He's going to be out there. He's going to play through it. He's going to give this team, you know, the same amount of minutes per night. Just I think, you know, his his role scoring the ball on offense is going to change a little bit, I think. We kind of have the same idea on this because I think how – Cam has evolved as a three-point shooter. It's been exceptional. He's so much better now from deep before the injury. But I think we saw it against UNC on Monday. I think the more long-range shots, unless Cam can get more comfortable with either whatever is bothering him on his wrist and on his hand or with the guard, whatever is is causing his his shot to change a little bit. I just don't know if that's going to become part of the game that that Wake Forest needs him to play. I think Cam's really good driving the basketball, but when he does it in a responsible way, I think, you know, sometimes there is that little bit doing too much Cam that can come out at some times. And that obviously you want to avoid because ball distribution is a huge part of the Wake Forest offense. But I just don't know if we're going to see the long range shots from Cam, or I, I don't think Wake is going to want to necessarily see those long range shots from Cam unless he can feel comfortable again. But moving on to the the next injured player, with Damari Monsanto, I don't know if Wake Forest needs Cam Hildreth to be shooting, say, five three-point attempts anymore. You have Damari. You have Parker Fredrickson. You have Andrew Carr who can hit threes. I mean, Wake Forest, if they really wanted to, they could run a five-out lineup easy. And he, Zach Keller even can hit some. So it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be a storyline for the rest of the season, how comfortable Cam is shooting the ball because it's clearly bothering him. and. It sounds like it's not a fun injury just based on the descriptions we've gotten with how it's going to be more of a long-term deal. I can't imagine how hard it is to play basketball right now for Cam Hildreth, but we'll see how he feels, how he looks for sure against Pitt. Cause I think that's going to dictate a lot about what happens with Cam for the rest of this season. Before we move on, Ben, just in terms of Damari, how many minutes do you think are the kind of the, is the perfect setup for him right now? Cause I, Personally, I don't know if Damari is going to start at all this season, barring any injuries to others, but he's clearly 
so impactful when he's on the court. He changes Wake Forest game. I'm just wondering what the Damari show is going to look like for the remainder of this season. Yeah, I think the the biggest part of it right now, and and Steve Forbes did talk about this after the game, so I guess I'll you know I'll, I'll clue you all in into a little bit of what Steve Forbes said in the press conference. You know, the question was asked, um, you know, just up in general about Damari's pitch count, where he's at. Steve Forbes, you know, responsible answer said, "I like to stay in my lane. I like to let the doctors decide that." Right now, he's you know, he's about at twelve a night is is the max is what he said after. The UNC game. I think he got 14 against UNC and Forbes said, you know, that might've even been a few too many right now. He said, you know, he's like, that's, that's about all he can play right now. That's all the doctors are recommending, you know, Jamari Monsanto before a couple games ago, hadn't played college basketball game in 11 months. So it's going to take some time. His jump shot looks as good as ever, by the way, he was a big part of Wake Forest sort of success in that first half. He came in off the bench and immediately hit two threes. Jump shot lock looks as smooth as ever. I think it's just, you know, when you're rehabilitating from a major knee injury like that, getting back into, you know, conditioned back into game shape, it is a process. So I agree with you. I It seems like the, the starting lineup, unless Cam's injury or someone else's, you know, who gets banged up, unless their injuries worsen in a significant way, I don't necessarily see Demario Monsanto entering the starting lineup anytime soon. Not to say, I guess, I wouldn't rule it out, totally that it, it didn't happen. He was obviously a very impactful starter for this team last year. The makeup of the, the roster has shifted a little bit. I think, you know, if Damari was in full shape, uh, my guess is that he probably would be, you know, starting for this team. That's not the case right now. I think you would love to have Damari Monsanto at a place by the end of the regular season where he can give you, you know, 25 minutes a night, I think would look like a really good and for him, I, I think that represents sort of that this team being at full strength is when Demario Monsanto can give you 25 minutes a night, sort of play that starter slash sixth man type of minutes and be that force out there on the court where a guy that's impossible to prepare for, really hard to defend, gives you that spark off the bench. You've already seen what he can do. You know, he hit six threes in his first 14 minutes back of gameplay. That is a pretty good ratio, you know in my expert opinion. But I think if, if you can get to a point where DeMario Monsanto is giving you 25 minutes off the bench and shooting the ball at the clip that he was last year, I think that makes this team a lot more dangerous. That 20, 25 minute range sounds about good to me. I'm going to be really intrigued to see just kind of what lineups are used with DeMario because I think the pairing of DeMario and Parker Fredrickson, putting them each on a corner makes Wake Forest really um, dangerous on offense. So it's going to be interesting what they do with Damari, but I think I agree with you, Ben, that that 25 minute range is probably about right. Moving on. We've got some questions on football here. The first of them is in regards to a very important position when it comes to the game. And especially when it comes to the future of wake forest in 2024, and that's the quarterback position. Memphis will be playing for Marshall next season. And Wake Forest is going to have a few quarterbacks vying for the starting spot in 24. You, of course, have Hank Bachmeyer, who's coming in out of the portal, started at Boise State, and then went to Louisiana Tech. And then you have Jeremy Hiklinski, a star quarterback from Georgia. He was a finalist for National High School Player of the Year, highly regarded, really, really talented. 
to me, those two are going to be the big two battling it out for the starting role. And spring camp is going to be very, very fun to watch those two guys play. But the question is, any thoughts regarding how Dave Clawson will handle that position given last year's, quote, debacle? That was the, the, the wording in the question. For me, and Dave Clawson has said this, it's going to be an open battle in my mind. I mean, they every every quarterback, just about every quarterback on the roster is going to be given a shot at the starting role in spring camp, summer camp, getting into the 24 season. We were asked, who's the early favorite? For me, that has to be Hank Bachmeyer, just given his exper- experience, what he's shown, especially at Boise State. You have to feel like he's, if there's anyone who's a little bit in front, it's probably him. But I think Jeremy Hiklinski certainly got a shot. I don't think they want to start him just because this would probably be a year where you want to get his red shirt in and extend how much he can impact your program. Give him a year to get bigger, stronger, faster and make him a far more appealing option for the 2025 season. But I think if Jeremy Hicklinski comes in and knocks everybody's socks off in spring ball and summer camp, then I think there's a very much so a chance that he could be starting in 24 I'm very, very intrigued to watch him play in person. I've never seen Jeremy Eklinski play in person. And all the film I've watched, I watch him play in the state championship. He's a very, very good quarterback. And so that's going to be a battle, no doubt, between Eklinski and, and Hank Bachmeyer for the spot. Yeah, and we've touched on this in the show a couple of times. We interviewed Jeremy Eklinski back after his initial commitment to Wake Forest. Uh, we interviewed him on the phone for for Deacons daily um, and a remarkably confident young man, um, you know, seems, seems was entirely committed to wake Forest back then has remained that way all throughout, you know, his high school career comes out of a really, really competitive division of Georgia high school football of playing a very high, you know, a very high quality brand of high school football. Also his high school ran a lot of, RPO stuff like that stuff that I think will make him you know allow him to mesh well into Wake Forest offensive system I think in terms of ceiling I think he has the highest ceiling of anyone in that quarterback room I think Jeremy Hiklinski does to be you know a long-term very very good starting quarterback for Wake Forest in the ACC I agree with you Essex I think Hake Bachmeyer gets the edge right off the bat I think that's why he was brought in is potentially to be the stopgap guy for the year that you have to get Jeremy Hiklinski, you know, suited to college football. I think the ideal situation for Wake Forest probably this year, like you said, I'll agree. I think is Hank Bachmeyer earns the starting job, veteran guy. Jeremy Hiklinski is able to separate himself as the clear backup, learn under a veteran quarterback who's been around the block. If there are some mop-up games for Wake Forest, Jeremy Heglinski takes some snaps, gets some game action while maintaining that red shirt, like you said, and then earns the starting job full and away next year and gets sort of handed the keys. But this year, there will be no handing of the keys. You know, after Sam Hartman departed, it was Mitch Griffiths' team. Dave Clawson has made infinitely clear, I think this is a smart call, I don't think debacle is a totally unfair way to describe how the quarterback situation unfolded last year for Wake Forest. I think that's somewhat valid based on what happened. Anybody's battle. And I think that is absolutely how you have to treat it after you finish last in the ACC. I think you have no choice than to do that. And 
anybody who can help this team win will be out on the field is how I, you know, believe that it will go down. But, you know, based on just how the nature of these things usually go, that is my prediction for how I think Dave Clawson would like for it to go. I guess that's that's my best guess. Not that I have any insider information or anything, but that is my best guess. I mean, that's something that he's verbalized is whoever's going to help the team win is going to play. So if that's a Klinsky, it's a Klinsky starting at quarterback as a true fesh, freshman hasn't happened at Wake Forest since one Sam Hartman. If it's Hank Bachmeyer, it's Hank Bachmeyer. Another question that came to us in regards to the football team is something that just happened. The 2024 football schedule was released. So early thoughts on that, but also more of the meat of the question and something I probably want to talk about a little bit more, Ben, is our predictions for that schedule. Just glossing it over. You have Ole Miss coming to Winston-Salem for our reunion, so for homecoming rather. So potentially both of us back in Winston-Salem to watch the Deeks play Ole Miss in week three, start the ACC season off early in week two against Virginia, uh, have some tough away games. You got to go to NC State. You're going out to Stanford. You have Cal at home, back-to-back aways, North Carolina, Miami, finish off with Duke at home. It's not an easy schedule. I mean, Wake's out of conference is not as easy as it normally is. At UConn game is going to be tough. Louisiana's a pretty strong football team. And then you have Ole Miss, which is potentially one of the front runners to compete for the CFP National Championship next season with everything they've done in the transfer portal and having it, you know, Lane Kiffin as your head coach and Jackson Dart as your starting quarterback. Not going to be easy for Wake Forest next season, Ben. So before we hopped on the pod here, I know we talked about ceiling. So where do you think the ceiling is for Wake Forest? And then where do you kind of predict things will go for the Deeks in, in 24? Okay, so yeah, we sort of we sort of did this before the podcast, but I'll just sort of go through ceiling. I think what this Wake Forest team can do, provided that you know you get maximum production out of everything and, and, and the ship sort of gets righted from from last year. So I think you gotta have the first two games. I think you gotta beat A and T on Thursday night at home. You gotta beat Virginia at home to open up conference play i just don't think there's any way wake forest beats ole miss jackson dart returning for ole miss to start at quarterback again is a huge deal and like you said essex i think this team is a very good bet to reach the expanded college football playoff field next year potentially even compete for a national title so i think that is a game that wake forest is going to be you know i think it might take a small miracle for them to win that one i think after that you got to have a louisiana game at home so I think you get to three and one through your first four. It's really hard for me to predict Wake Forest goes into to Raleigh and NC State and wins after what has happened the last couple times Wake Forest has faced off against NC State. I feel the same way about Clemson at home. Wake Forest just really, really struggles to get the job done against Clemson. And I think Clemson's going to be really good next year. I think you can beat UConn on the road. I think that's a winnable game. So that is your fourth win there. I think realistically... I think you can beat Stanford and Cal. So I think those are both winnable games, although at Stanford, it's going to be really, really tough sort of going out to the West Coast for that inaugural West Coast trip for Wake Forest. I think that's going to be a really, really tough game to win, but I do think it is winnable. Um, I think you can beat Cal at home. I think you're going to lose to both Carolina and Miami on the road. That is a brutal two-game road stretch. And then the Duke game at home, I think, could be a toss up. So that is maybe your seventh win. Um, 
So I think, I've, you know, right now, I think eight games is the absolute ceiling if you beat Duke and then steal one of the other ones is, you know, my take. But more than likely, I think the ceiling is seven. I agree. I think the ceiling's probably seven. That's what I've written down. My prediction, this is going to be a fluid prediction because there's a lot of unknowns for Wake Forest. I'm Before I make a, a more concrete prediction, we're going to have to get through spring ball, uh, and I want to see the quarterbacks, and I want to see more of the makeup uh, of Wake Forest. But as of right now, I think the more like a realistic, there's a ceiling and then the realistic ceiling. I think the realistic ceiling is six. I think Wake Forest would love to get to a bowl game next year. I think getting to a bowl game would be good for Wake Forest, just based on what is kind of on the table for them, both schedule and roster wise. I see them struggling to do that. I'm not going to be taking any bet out there. That's Wake Forest to make a bowl. I think it's probably four or five, which is going to be another tough season for the fans after what happened this past year. But hey, maybe maybe something changes. Maybe I see something in spring ball that that gives me a little bit of hope. Maybe something out of Hank Bachmeyer or Jeremy Eklinski. But I don't know. It's a really tough schedule. So I'd say five right now is probably. I think Wake Forest goes five and seven next year and. Maybe maybe yeah. the way things shook out this year with the whole bowl craziness, five gets you in. Maybe Wake gets into a bowl on five. But I think you'd love to get to a bowl with this team and this schedule. But to me, four or five seems a little more realistic looking now at Wake Forest's schedule. I agree. Yeah, I think it, I think it's just hard when you when you have, you know, in my mind, three to four games on the schedule that are just scheduled losses. Like Ole Miss at home, you're not going to win that game. It's just a, it's just a tough one. I think it, you know it's good for the program to play those kinds of games. I just don't think there's any way that Wake Forest wins. And again, these are all very early predictions. And then you get a brutal back-to-back road stretch of at Carolina and at Miami. That is really really tough. And you know I agree. I think you know my prediction. I think the year will end up playing out probably similar to this past year. Hopefully with a few more bright spots. But I think five and seven is a sound prediction. I think it is. Like you, like I said, I think you know it's maybe possible that Wake Forest rallies and has a great program win and, and gets that sixth win and guarantees a bowl spot. But I think they're going to be really fighting hard to, you know, start a new bowl streak after you know the one this past year snapped. So I think it's going to be a kind of grinded out season for for Dave Clawson and company. Moving on to our our final question before we bid you all adieu this evening. And this one was posed by Connor O'Neill. Connor, of course, not really doing the whole formal question sending in process. He he posed this question in my replies on Twitter. And I don't even know if it was a question that was supposed to really be discussed on the pod. But you know what? We're going to do it. And that is our favorite media section slash press boxes and also the worst. So... I, you know what, I'll, I'll I'll take this one first because I've got a little bit more extensive thoughts probably, but I'll, I'll start at the top with football. I don't off the top of my head have a worst press box, but Clemson, Clemson kind of irks me a little bit just because 
it's awesome being out in the open field. It's a really, really nice press box. It's like an NFL level press box, but the students you're right on top of the students and the students can get a little loud and a little antsy. Let's put it that way. (laughs) So having the student section right under you in when you can certainly hear them, it's, it's certainly an experience, but otherwise Clemson's a great football press box. I love being outside. And so that's why my favorite football press box is kind of an under the radar one. And that's the university of Virginia. I haven't been up there since my sophomore year of college when I still worked for the on-campus newspaper, but I went up and covered a game when Wake Forest won there and the A, it was a night game, which was super fun. It was pretty loud, really great environment and the open air press box where you're truly sitting out in the, you know, you're in the environment, you're a part of the outdoor environment, I think was something that, that really hit home with me. And I loved it. I really love that kind of vibe in a press box. So I thought Virginia was great basketball. I can't talk about basketball without, without, um, without Cameron indoor. I mean, being on the floor in that, in that arena, that historic arena with the fans right on top of you in the best way, as opposed to the worst way, which I mentioned earlier. I mean, those fans are so passionate for the most part, very, very nice to the media. I've never really had any issues with them and being that close to the court at a place like Cameron indoor is incomparable to anything else. The worst NC state, this one goes to you. (laughs) There are usually, there's like two media spots on the floor on the baselines and they're seldom getting sent out to either you or you or myself. So that means a nice old trip up five stories in the elevator to the hockey press box, which is literally like covering a basketball game from the clouds. So definitely not my favorite. It's, you know, if you're high, high up in the air, it can give you a good vantage point of the court. This is too high for that to be considered a a positive. And then the last one, I'll just talk about baseball. I mean, I love covering games from Wake Forest press box, but away from Wake, Louisville baseball is really, really fun. They've got a great stadium, a solid press box, a really good SID team, which I think is underrated, is having SIDs that are really helpful when you're away from home. And my experience there could not have been better. Louisville is a really fun town also. I had a lot of fun there when when Les Johns and I went last year for the baseball series. Really good group of folks at Louisville baseball, great stadium, really good press box. So for baseball, that that certainly gets a nod from me. Yeah, I'll give my thoughts here. Um, so for I'll, I'll start with football. One of one of you know a sort of under the radar good football experience that I had was Essex. You and I went to cover. I remember this day because. Wake Forest basketball had a game in the morning before the Duke game. And you and I sat in the sat in my car or your car in the parking garage and streamed the game on our laptops and live tweeted the game because we knew that we weren't really going to be able to do that once we walked into the the press box for the Wake Forest Duke football game. So we did that and then we walked into the Duke press box for the football game. And then it was a nice sunny day. So they opened up the windows and it became an open air press box in the Duke press box. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that was very nice. Duke stadium. They kind of struggled with attendance for football a little bit. So it's not like the stadium was rocking or anything, but it was a nice day. It was warm. 
you know, I enjoyed, like you said, watching some football and some open air from, from that aerial viewpoint is always nice. Nice. I think Louisville's press box on the road is a really nice one as well. You and I drove up there to cover a true debacle of a football game for Wake Forest when Wake Forest turned the ball over six times in the third quarter and just got completely blitzed on the road against Louisville. Um, but the press box was really nice. And, you know, pregame, you know, media meals, we haven't even talked about that for me is a, is a big factor for how good the press box is. I remember Louisville having some good food. NC State usually has good food for as bad as I think their basketball, you know, press seating is. They usually have pretty good food. Um, I'll transition to basketball now. I'm going to echo your sentiment about Cameron Indoor. I just, I don't really think that one can be beaten. That's like an atmosphere you can't really find anywhere else in college sports, sitting on the floor, sort of just being right around, you know, all that energy and that sort of controlled chaos. And then watching the game happen that close to you too, is just, you know, an experience that you can't really, you know, you can't really replicate. And is you know, it allows you to, I think, observe the game in a, in a completely different way. And had a had an absolute blast watching, you know, watching the Wake Forest Duke game and covering that on the road there last year. It was a really, you know, really good game, tough loss for Wake Forest, but that environment certainly is one I will always remember. And then yeah, I'll I'll give a clean sweep to NC State for being the worst. I feel like, you know, we covered the NC State game on the road last year. I felt like I needed, you know, when people go to the opera and they have those like binoculars on a stick that like you hold up to your eyes to like see the stage better. Felt like that is what we needed when we covered an NC State game because you really are that high up. It is, it is, it is really high up that you're watching what's going on on the floor. I'm trying to think of other noteworthy um, venues. I like covering games from the Dean Dome in in Chapel Hill. I think that you know you're a little high up in the media seating, but I think it's a really cool vantage point and a good angle to watch a game from. Um, you and I covered a game in the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, stadium for wake for or the arena for wake forest that was a fun one and then we watched some courtside hoops after that watched uh penny hardaway's team take on uh bruce pearl's auburn team and and enjoyed some courtside hoops from there so that was that was a fun one just getting to observe what an nba press row is like um so you know we essex you and i have been fortunate to sort of make our travels around the map and and, and cover some cool games together so I get, you know, th- th- this conversation is bringing up a lot of memories and, you know, a lot of, a lot of fun road trips that you and I have taken together, but th- those are sort of, those are sort of my thoughts. I know I kind of rambled there, but that- that's a fun question. I'm glad we, we got to address that one on the pod. Thank you, Connor, friend of the program, friend of the podcast. We appreciate that submission. Connor O'Neill always hitting the right notes when it comes to these kind of things. You know, you mentioned the journeys, those journeys were really fun. I wish we could, we're going to have to have conversations like this more on the pod in the future because you, you, I completely forgot to mention Omaha, which is like my favorite place experience thing of all time. Um, so probably my favorite goes to that, but hopefully we talk about this more later. We've talked about it enough for now. Thank you all so much for joining us for a, a different experienced episode of the boots on the ground pod where we, you know, have UNC, but also the mailbag mailbag. We hope to do this a little bit more. Pitt next up on the schedule for Wake Forest basketball, still a little bit more of a break. That's Wednesday night in Pittsburgh. We will have a podcast getting prepped for the Panthers. It'll be a purely Pitt episode uh, and we'll get ready for the Panthers and get everyone ready for, as we've said, a pretty critical game for Wake Forest Wednesday night. That's it for now. Alongside Ben Conroy, I've been Essex there. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will be back very soon with more Wake Forest basketball. See you soon.